We're actually coming down to the last couple of passages in Genesis, and we're in the Joseph cycle, the Joseph narrative, and it's the longest kind of story in the Bible. It runs 14 chapters from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, and uh, we are also in the season of Lent, and we're journeying towards Easter, towards the resurrection of our Savior, and uh, remembering God is the theme of this series and of our time together during Lent as we, maybe some of us have given up things, are fasting in some way, um, in order not just to lose weight, though if I give up rice, I lose a lot of weight, um, but we may give up things so we can be more attuned and attentive uh, to what God is doing in our life, to how God is moving. And um, there's something to be said about wandering in the desert. Right? In Exodus, you see the people are wandering in the desert. Jesus, before his public ministry, before his temptation, wandered in the desert for 40 days. So there's this 40 years, 40 days. And in Lent, we um, wander as well. We're in an Exodus. We're in the wilderness for 40 days plus six Sundays, um, where we are maybe stripped of um, some of the, our creature comforts, some of the things that we're used to, um, and those buffers are taken away. And when those buffers are taken away, our hearts become more vulnerable, more open to what God is saying, what God is trying to say in our lives, in our community, and whatnot. And, um, and one of the challenges of Joseph and Genesis, for that matter, is that it's a long story, um, but we, we are covering Joseph in three weeks. And so... Uh, the challenge of that is it's an amazing story, and there's a lot of really good, like, it makes for good Netflix drama, right? The Joseph story. I, I, we talked about how, uh, we talked about last week how there's a lot of ups and downs. And those ups and downs, maybe if you look ahead to Lent and the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, that there, it, there's a similar kind of rhythm of rise and fall, right? Joseph is left for dead. He's sold into slavery. He goes from being the favored son um, to being at the bottom of the pit, literally at the bottom of a cistern. And he's sold into slavery, so he hits rock bottom. So there's this kind of death. And then what we'll see in uh, today's passage and today's passages is Joseph's rise, right? Rising and then this reconciliation with his brothers and a, a, a type of renewal or resurrection if you will, of the family, and also the story of God in the family of delivering them into his promises, which has all been de all but dead at this point. You know, Jacob is like, my son Joseph is dead. The promises are dead, right? All of God's promises of making us a great family, a great nation, they're all dead. And so we see the beauty of God's transformative power, God's hand working in the story to redeem it, remake it, uh, um, make it new. And those things are who God is, amen? God is about our rises and falls. There are a lot of times that we, raise your hand if you've been in a hard place, you've been in the pit, you've been at rock bottom, maybe you've been between jobs, maybe you've struggled financially, maybe you've lost relationships, right? Or relationships aren't doing well and you've hit rock bottom and you're like, where are you, God? I thought you promised me this and this and this goodness and blessing, right? I thought, 
I was right with you. I thought we were going in an awesome direction. And now this, I've hit a wall. I'm in the desert. I'm thirsting. And there's no water in sight. And there's no food. And you can kind of um, relate to the people of Israel in Egypt. Right? When they came out of slavery and God delivered them from their enemies. And still they start griping and complaining in the desert because... There's no water. And there's so much complaint in their heart that they're like, we'd rather go into Egypt again into slavery than to trust you, God, even though you've delivered us over and over again. And we've been in those places, right? We've been in those places. It's easy to praise God and worship Him and bow down and lift up our hands when things are good in life, right? Praise God. Clap my hands when you're happy and you know it. Stomp your feet. Right? But when things are hard, all of a sudden you're like, where's God? Where's God? Right? I don't know. I, I doubt. I don't believe. And we've all been in those places, right? And Joseph is in that place. His brothers sold him out to slavery. Right? He's in Egypt in the house of Potiphar, and he's a slave. He went from favored son with his coat of many colors. And maybe he was a little bit arrogant and kind of pushed that a little bit and made his brothers kind of mad. Uh, But now he's in a bad place. He's in a hard place. And any of us in a similar situation would be asking this question, where are you, God? Where are you? And so I'm going to go zip through, if there's a slide here, uh, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to do a zip through uh, 30, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, until uh, 44. So bear with me. This is going to be the Bible, 14 chapters in like two seconds. Um, but our passage today, Joseph, beginning in uh, Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared, everyone Leave now. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. Now, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master of all of Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you. I will support you there so you, your household, and everyone with you won't starve, since the famine will still last five years. You and my brother Benjamin 
have seen with your own eyes that I am speaking to you. Tell my father about my power in Egypt and about everything you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. This is the word of the Lord. And so, uh, how did he get into this place? This is when he first reveals himself to his brothers uh, as he's risen in Egypt to power. And he's been reunited with his brothers and he weeps, he says, so uncontrollably that all of the Egyptians in Pharaoh's household heard them. But leading up to this, in chapter 33, uh, 38, uh, there's this interlude of the story of Judah and Tamar. And you guys know the story of Judah and T Tamar? Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Uh, Tamar is married to one of Judah's sons, and that son, her husband, dies. And Judah, as is the custom, he dies without having an heir. So uh, in their custom, they uh, would often have uh, a, a brother, a younger brother, another brother, marry uh, the wife, the widow of uh, the brother, in order that um, they, he could have an heir. And the, the heir of that, the heir would be of the deceased, of deceased father. So this is what's happening, is that Judah sends his, one of his, his other son to be with Tamar so she could have a child, but he refuses. And basically he refuses and God gets mad at him and takes him up. And, and then the third son, seeing that both brothers have died being with Tamar are, is like, no, I'm not even going to like be with her, <laughs> right? And so uh, they don't do that. So Tamar comes up with this plan. She comes up with this plan to uh, uh, act as a temple prostitute uh, on the way to a town where her father-in-law is going. And she sleeps with her father-in-law, but... Before, before this, she says, give me your signet ring, give me your cloak and your staff. You know, so I know that when you come back, you're going to take care of me, you're going to uh, give me payment. Um, and then she disappears, and when Judah comes back, she's not there. Later on, she has a child, right, by her father-in-law, and he's like, who has done this? Like, right, she's been sleeping around, she's a prostitute. And then Tamar shows her father-in-law stuff and says, it was you, right? And the interesting thing about this story, it's kind of a random side thing, but Tamar in, Ma in the Gospel of Matthew is in Jesus' genealogy, right? Tamar is in Je Jesus' genealogy along with Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Ruth is not a Jewish, not, not Jewish person, right? Bathsheba is the one that David um, murdered Uriah and had, uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Rahab was a prostitute that helped the spies, right? So all of these scandalous women are in Jesus' genealogy. And you're like, why? What is the point of this? And the point is, I think, one point is that God is bigger than tradition, the tradition of people and noble birth lines, right? He's bigger than tradition and noble birth lines. 
that the God of our universe, that Jesus Christ, came from ordinary people, came from scandalous people, tells us that there's nothing that we can do, right, to earn merit, right? There's nothing that we can do right to be, like, noble in front of God and earn us, like, this noble birthright, right? And we see this all through Genesis, right? The people are struggling for birthright, struggling for blessing, and they're doing every, Jacob, ankle grabber, doing everything that he can, right, to get blessing. And in the end, it's all about God. If God wants to bless, he'll bless. And he's not just going to bless Jacob, he, he blessed Esau too. He blesses everyone, anyone he wants to bless. It's not because you're special, or because you're the son of blah, 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 and you have pure blood, right? God will do what he wants to do. Amen? Amen. Awesome. And then in our narrative, we see that out of scandal of Joseph's brother's malicious actions of wanting to kill him, but then ending up selling him into Egypt, that God will begin to shape the story, the meta story, the larger picture of preserving the line of Jacob. Because that's what's threatened, right? Jacob has lost hope after Joseph's death. And the threat is, it's the, it's the line of Jacob. How is that going to continue? How is God's promise going to be con continued? But this is a story about how God will shape the larger story of saving um, this family and bringing them into the land of Egypt. And we have this kind of refrain throughout uh, 38, 39, 40 of, but the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. He was in a hard spot, but the Lord was with Joseph, blessing him, helping him to thrive, helping him to succeed, helping him to rise up. So God is shaping this story with his own power, regardless of people messing things up, right? People being in bad situations, God is shaping the meta story. Um, in 39, Joseph grows. Joseph lands in Potiphar's household. Potiphar is one of the officials of Pharaoh. And uh, it, again, it says the Lord was with him. And God blessed Potiphar through Joseph. So whatever, Joseph was basically like house manager. And whatever Joseph touched, like succeeded and thrived. And Potiphar succeeded. And he saw this and he trusted Joseph. So he put Joseph in charge of everything. And the more he put Joseph in charge of, like, just thriving, thriving. So Potiphar's like, I love Joseph. He's like my good luck charm. Uh, actually, he actually says God is with. Clearly, God is with Joseph. Not a good luck charm. Um, and once again, in 39, uh, what happens? Oh, and this is, a, this is more drama. This is a, it says Joseph was really handsome, right? And good, he was good looking, right? And Potiphar's wife saw him, and she was like, I want to get me some Joseph. And so she was like, she was like, come, Joseph, lie with me. And Joseph was like, no, man, you're the master's wife. And she's like, lie with me. And he's like, no. And she felt scorned. So uh, he ran away. Actually, Joseph runs away, but she grabs his cloak. And she took that opportunity to be like, to scream and go, ah, your servant Joseph tried to lie with me and force himself on me. See, here's his cloak. So Potiphar's like, what? How dare you do this, Joseph? And he throws him into jail. And so once again, 
right? Joseph is in a hard spot. He goes from up here to down here, right? Here's this rise and fall, rise and fall. And while in jail, uh, he, he sees two other people. Oh, no, this is, in verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Joseph grew in favor with the chief jailer. So the jailer really, he's like the model prisoner and like the jailers love them, give him responsibility. And the chief jailer ends up entrusting everything to Joseph. Joseph is a stand-up guy. Like everyone likes him and wants to give control of everything to Joseph because he's stand-up, he has integrity, um, he's wise, he's shrewd, and the Lord was with them. This refrain again, the Lord was with them. The Lord was with them. Regardless of your circumstances, what? The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And even in the promises throughout Genesis, it's not just, I will give you land, I will make you, have, make you a great nation, I will give you many children and descendants. It's not just that, it's what? And I will be with you. I will be with you. Right? Whatever circumstances you find yourself in your life, the Lord is with you. The promise is God is present. God will be with you. <clears throat> so he rises in Potiphar's home. And then one day, uh, the cupbearer to Pharaoh and the baker are thrown into jail with Joseph. And they both have dreams. And you can go back and read the dreams. But basically, the cupbearer's dream was that there's going to be three branches and uh, three blossom, and they'll blossom into grapes. And then he's going to feed Pharaoh's uh, with this cup from the wine from these branches. So Joseph interprets that as uh, the three branches are three days. In three days, you're going to be restored. Pharaoh's going to say, oh, my bad. Come back and serve me as a cupbearer. And the baker is like, it's the opposite. In three days, Pharaoh's going to hang you, behead you, and all the birds will eat your flesh. And it happens just as Joseph says. But the cupbearer who promised to remember Joseph in front of Pharaoh forgets about Joseph. But then Pharaoh in chapter 41 has a dream. And he dreams uh, two things in succession. There's seven fat, ugly cows by the banks of the Nile. And then right after them, or there's seven fat, pretty cows. And then there's seven ugly, thin cows. And the seven ugly, thin cows eat the fat cows. And then right after that, he has another dream that there are seven uh, plump grains on one stalk, and then seven thin and blighted ears of grain. And these seven blighted uh, thin grains eat the fat plump grains. Um, and so Pharaoh was like, what does this dream mean? And that's when the cupbearer remembered, oh, there's this guy in prison. It was Joseph, and he's a dream interpreter, right? And maybe you should talk to him. So Pharaoh calls up Joseph. Um, he's disturbed by this dream. Um, and jo Joseph interprets it like this. There's going to be seven good years in the land, right? Harvest, rain, like a lot of fruitfulness. And then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine throughout the land. So Pharaoh's like, oh my gosh, what should I do? And Joseph, being the shrewd manager, was like, you should save up. During the seven years of plenty, 
you should save a fifth of every, all of the produce, everything that's produced, save a fifth of that and save it away in storehouses. And it's so, it, it happened. And actually Pharaoh made Joseph, right, the administrator of all of this. He was second in command in all of Egypt, uh, controlling uh, this plan. And the, indeed, the seven years of famine came and they had saved, Egypt had saved away so much stuff that all the world, all the other nations around them came to them and Joseph was the person that distributed food to people who were in need, all because of this kind of foresight and shrewdness. Um, just makes you think of uh, church finances, right? Uh, you're doing well, then you put, it a, put some aside, right? So when you're in famine, it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's not quite like that. Um, so Jace, Joseph, so when we look back, it's this rhythm, this story of falling and rising, falling and rising. And all along, God is helping Joseph. God is with Joseph. God is with them. And, and just by chance, by all of these amazing coincidences, he helps Joseph to rise from being a slave in Egypt to rising into great power in Egypt. So during the famine, uh, and now we're in chapter 42, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt. Jacob's like, oh, we need some food. So uh, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes his brothers. And these are the brothers, mind you, that threw him into slavery, that wanted to kill him, that schemed against him. Um, And he starts to toy with them, right? He's like, one of you needs to stay here. Right? And go fetch your youngest son. Because he's never met Benjamin, the youngest son. And, and there's this, another instance where Joseph turns away and weeps. Right? This becomes a theme. He, he turns away and weeps, but he doesn't reveal it to anyone. He just goes into private and weeps. And what he does is put all the money that they had brought to buy the grain back into this brother's sack. Um, but Reuben says this. Reuben says, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back when they're talking to Jacob. Because Jacob's like, I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin because I only have two sons by my wife. And if you remember, Rachel is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Even though uh, he has 12 sons, (laughs) 13 sons now. He only counts two of the sons, Benjamin and Joseph, because Rachel was the wife that he truly loved. And so you, you could just see the family dynamics in that. Um, but he loved Benjamin. And the older brothers get this now. I think they get it because Reuben says, you can kill my two sons if we don't bring Benjamin back. Let us bring Benjamin back to Egypt because that's what this guy's saying. Um, and what I was thinking about this is what kind of economy must Reuben be living in, right? To say, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons, right? It's, it's an economy of this for that, right? Retribution, right? If you lose Benjamin, then you can take my two sons. And it's an economy of scarcity, right? Not of abundance like we talked about. It's, a, it's an economy of a kind of 
payment, right? You, what cost and benefit, you know, and you take this, then I pay this, rather than one of grace. In God's economy of grace, we know that we don't deserve any of God's grace, but he gives it to us freely, right? Even though we might fight against that and say, what must I do to gain an eternal life? What's my, what must I do to have your grace, God? What must I do to be forgiven? Annie, I've wronged you. How can I grovel, right? Or bribe you to get you to forgive me, right? I'll, I'll hit myself five times if you'll just forgive me, right? So we, we have this kind of payback system economy. God's economy is totally different. And we'll see more of that coming up. So I'll give up my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. That's 42. So they, Jacob finally relents and said, okay, take Benjamin. But also bring these gifts. Bring this gift of fruit, honey, gum, rot, resin, almonds, and pistachio nuts, and double the money. As a side note, I was like, what? I thought they were in a famine. Right, but they have pistachio nuts and almonds and gum and honey, um, so I thought they were in a famine. But the brothers bring brought this to Joseph's house, and it says again that they're terrified. Right, they're terrified that Joseph is going to jack them up, and that they're going to lose Benjamin, and that the father Jacob is going to be forever like going to have a heart attack because the sadness compounded upon sadness and tragedy upon tragedy. Um, and Joseph sees Benjamin, his younger brother, and hurries out with affection for his brother and weeps. But he goes into a private room and weeps. And I think a lot of us, how many of us have watched those movies where there's this moment where the main character weeps, breaks down and weeps? Like I can remember Saving Private Ryan, where Tom Hanks, after like, all these ordeals, all this war, all these people dying. He's been the strong leader. And there's a scene where he just breaks down and just weeps. And everyone, and there's not a dry eye in a theater, right? Everyone is weeping because we all feel it. We all feel this release that what has been hidden from his soldiers, his friends, everyone around him, because he's needed to be the strong person, he's hidden uh, that deep pain. We get to see him break down and weep. Or you see athletes in the Olympics or World Cup, right? After they uh, win the World Cup, that they finally let down their guard and start weeping. If you've been watching March Madness, you see these seniors. They always, the cameraman always pan on the seniors after they lose the game because so suddenly, like, that was their last game. Like, and it hits them, like, this is the last basketball game I'll ever play and that shows them just weeping weeping and and just uncontrollably and we've all had those times right where maybe we're alone in our room and just the stress and the overwhelmingness of life overcomes us and we just weep or the thing that you're longing for have been praying for and God is just not answering and you just weep and uh, maybe no one knows, right? No one knows, but God sees all of our deep hidden pains, right? God sees the things that make you weep, the longing for home, the longing to be reunited, the pain of being betrayed by friends, by family members, right? This is the stuff that Joseph's feeling, right? 
and it's so mixed in them. He's like, oh, I'm so angry at my brothers for giving up on me and for treating me like this. And yet I see Benjamin and I'm so happy because here's my blood. Like, and I'm going to be reunited with him. Like, oh my gosh. Um, and then in 44, Joseph sends them off again. And he's kind of playing with them. He sends them off again, filling their sacks with food and giving their own money back on top of their sacks. But he puts his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And then a bunch of soldiers, after they leave, a bunch of soldiers, soldiers catch up with them. And Joseph says to them, why have you stolen from me after I've been so kind to you? My, where is my cup? And some smart brother says, as we live, like, you can kill us if you find this cup. Kill the one who you find. And it's found in Benjamin's cup, obviously. And this is like the holy crap moment, right? Oh, my gosh. This is like the worst thing that can happen is for Benjamin to be killed, right? Our father is not going to make it through this. So it says they all tear their clothes. Right? And if you remember in the beginning of our story, they showed their father Joseph's torn up clothes right? and lied to him and said the, the animals tore him up and killed him. Right? And here you see that things have flipped, have reversed, and they're tearing their clothes. They're like, this can't happen. Right? We cannot lose another brother, and our father can't take this. So they appeal to Joseph, and they say, this will destroy our father Jacob. This is actually Judah, and Judah was the ringleader, if you remember, of getting rid of Joseph. Judah actually says, this will destroy our father, and Judah offers himself up as a sacrifice. Take me instead of Benjamin. And we see, like I mentioned before, none of the characters in Scripture are static. Like, they don't stand still. They're changing, they're growing, they're maturing, or getting worse. Hopefully they're growing for the better. And Judah has changed, right? He's no longer willing to kill his brother. He's no longer not thinking about his father's heart. Now he's offering himself up as a sacrifice. And he's aware of his father's heart. He's aware of like, man, if Benjamin is gone, this will destroy our father Jacob. Right? He's aware that Benjamin is the favored younger son and not like kind of put obsessed with, well, he's the favored son. I should be the favored son. Right? All of this is gone, and he's willing to sacrifice himself. Um, and so we finally get to our passage. <laughs> Thank you for that long story. And I've labeled this the reveal, right? come closer. Um, and I kind of saw a lot of similarity in this is with the Esau and Jacob reconciliation passage. If you remember, Jacob, he's afraid of Esau and he's about to meet Esau again. Esau has 400 men and he splits up his family in stages, right? From, from like least important, ah, my servants and my servants' kids, and my horses, and my donkeys, and then Leah, and then Rachel, and then Joseph. You remember that? 
And he's like, like maybe Esau will kill these people, kill these people, kill these people, and then at least the things closest to me, closest to my heart, can run away, right? Um, and so there's something very similar in this, in that there's a staged reconciliation, right? They're coming closer and closer. And Joseph is like, you know, give me Benjamin, right? Like, give me, let's see your father. And it's getting closer and closer. And at the same time, his emotions that he's hidden, right? He weeps privately when he sees them. Again, he weeps. And then this, this final in this chapter, he weeps so that every, he cannot control himself any longer, right? It's getting closer and closer to his heart, to his pain, right? And finally it says, he wept so loud that even the Egyptians heard him, right? It's kind of like, if you grow up an immigrant, if you grow up an immigrant, it's like, the Americans heard me, right? <laughs> right, even though I'm an American, I'm Korean American, but when we grew up, we like, don't talk too loud in McDonald's because the Americans might hear me, right? It's like there's something about your immigrant home experience that is private. That's only for you, right? And then your life in school or outside, you flip the bicultural switch and it's like the dominant culture out there and you learn how to negotiate through that. But there's things that you don't, they won't understand. They don't understand kimchi in my refrigerator or like garlic in my bread. You know, they don't understand those kind of things. So you kind of hide that. Um, and I see that in that is like Joseph finally could not control the deepest parts of his identity, right? Hebrew, ditched by his family, but in power in Egypt, and even the Egyptians heard him, right? And he's wailing. And another example is we don't, you look at other cultures and you see funerals or you see other things happen and they're wailing, right? You see people just wailing. And you don't see that, I mean, at a funeral in, a, in the States, you'll see crying and stuff, but you don't see mass wailing, like a nation wailing. Like, there's more reserve, right? And so in other cultures, you might, like, see them wailing and, like, whoa, that's intense, right? And you see Joseph here weeping so loudly that the Egyptians hear, right? Like, when was the last time you wept? loudly. So Joseph can't contain himself any longer. That which was hidden, that which was done in private is now welling out of him. He weeps so loudly that everyone hears it, <coughs> even the Egyptian. There's stuff only immigrant, or okay, I said that. Um, so there are things in our story that hold a secret place in our hearts. It's a huge part of our identity and yet we're afraid to let others into that, to let others see our pain, especially when that pain was caused by the very people standing in front of us. Joseph is healing right before our eyes. God's redemption and grace is transforming him as he experiences very deeply the story coming full circle. That which was tragedy is being redeemed. And seeing Benjamin and how his brothers protect him and honor their father puts him over the edge. That's what puts him over the edge. They see his brothers protecting Benjamin and trying to honor their father, something he didn't get. And his brothers have changed. 
So he says, come closer. And at this point, the brothers are terrified. They're like, uh. They're terrified that what they did years ago will come back on them. They're afraid of retribution, the economy of revenge. Because um, revenge makes a great story, right? Revenge is such a good story. That's what Korean dramas are built around. They're built around revenge, right? Uh, but redemption is even a better story. Uh, as, as we see in the Jacob and Esau moment, uh, we see the prodigal son moment here where they run to each other and he throws his arms around his bro- brother Benjamin's neck and wept. The prodigal son, Jacob and Esau, did this as well when they were reunited, when they reconciled. Um, there's embracing and weeping and celebration. So, finally, our life hack today, which is a phrase that... Brandon used. Our life hack is there's a difference between the long view and the short view of life. And we'll address this next week. A lot of us dwell in the short view. Like we can only see the immediate circumstances. And when something goes wrong, we're like, the world is ending. God is not here. We doubt God. And we turn to other things to to make us feel better or to comfort us. Uh, But God has the long view. Amen. God is writing a longer story in our lives, and he's in control of that story, and we need to have a long view, right? The long view is we'll take the bumps here, we'll take scratches here, we'll take disappointments here, but in the end, God is control, in control, and he's going to redeem the situation, right? And that's good news, amen? That's good news. Um, so the long view versus short view uh, God can change the story by changing the economy. He changes uh, the story, our story, one of revenge and retribution a sim- uh, to that of amazing grace. The brothers don't deserve it. Joseph doesn't deserve it. No one deserves it. But God gives amazing grace into this story, and he redeems it. So God is capable, God is powerful to rewrite our story. Amen? Do you believe that God is capable and powerful to rewrite your story and the stories of people around you, the stories of people suffering around us? He can rewrite the story of our nation, right? He can redeem whatever's happening in our country, right? Um, So God is capable, but healing and reconciliation require vulnerability on my part, or on our part, right? In the garden, God was walking with Adam and Eve. They sin, they sin and they hide themselves. But what does God say? Where are you? Why are you hiding? We need to talk and walk, walk with each other again. And this is what it means to be reconciled with God. It means to open ourselves up to reconciliation. If you're wronged, if you're the wronged one, this is a tough proposition. You've been wronged just as Joseph was wronged. You've been betrayed. And you are the, yet you are the one that has to show that you've been hurt in order for reconciliation to happen, right? You have to be vulnerable. You have to reveal your vulnerability in order that the two of you can draw closer to one another. For the brothers, fear is what keeps them from drawing closer, right? A lot of us see those other people who aren't like us, and we're afraid to, like, approach because they hate me, they're other, right? 
And the brothers have this spirit. He will kill us. He hates us. Esau is breathing murderous sets. And yet we must overcome our prejudices and risk the possibility of a new relationship happening. Take risks. All of us need to risk in order to reconcile. Amen? And I've gone over time, so let's pray.